0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me today is Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing today? Doing
1: good. Pretty stoked to continue through Leviticus. Never thought I'd say that in my life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, most people listening to this probably never thought that they would be psyched to go through Leviticus, but yet here we are. Guys, thank you for tuning into the show today. If this is your first time listening, welcome. This podcast is cumulative. Here we explore the thesis that the Bible is a single unified story that ultimately points to Christ. Because we have that thesis, we're going through the Bible in real time, highlighting key elements of the story and showing how it all works together. Because of that, it is beneficial to listen to all of the episodes sequentially to get the best picture of of where we're going. So if you haven't yet done so, I would recommend listening to the episodes preceding this one, if possible. If you don't have time to go through every single one through Genesis, Exodus, and then into Leviticus, I would at least recommend listening to the ones regarding Leviticus, as that will get you up to speed on what we're going to be covering today. So in today's episode, we are going to be going through, hopefully, Chapters 11 all the way through 17. So buckle your seatbelts for that. But before we get into that, we're going to give a brief recap of the introduction to Leviticus. So chapters 1 through 10 that we went over last week. So without further ado, Corey, what did we chat about last week?
1: Yeah, can't believe we made it through 10 chapters last week. I don't know why seven chapters this week seems so daunting. Last week, we talked about the book of Leviticus being this mere image with uh, certain themes all centered around chapter 16 the day of atonement and so the first section was the first 7 chapters and it's all about the different sacrifices we talked about how there's five different offerings to make there's burnt offerings grain offerings peace offerings sin offerings and guilt offerings god is providing a way for sinful people to be brought into his presence And this is going back into the big problem that we left off Exodus in. And we mentioned that Exodus leaves us off with the tabernacle being built good, just as God had said it should be, but nobody can enter the tabernacle, not even Moses. And so God had to go over the different sacrifices and cleansings that needed to be made. And that brings us into the next section, which was chapters 8 through 10, which went into the priesthood. And so, Moses had to make sacrifices for Aaron and his sons. Once the priests were properly clothed, once the priests um, had properly cleansed themselves and Moses made sacrifices for them, then in chapter 9, Aaron was able to make sacrifices for himself and his sons, and then they were able to really start serving within the temple. But of course, you know, leave it to God's people to mess things up, and in chapter 10, Aaron's sons had lit an unauthorized fire or incense before Yahweh inside the tabernacle. We weren't exactly sure like what they did wrong, but you know, according to Exodus 30 that laid out the rules for the altar of incense and what it was inside the tabernacle, they did something other than what God had commanded. They did something that was maybe right in their own eyes, but not right in God's eyes. They done goofed up and Aaron's two sons lost their lives because of it. Here we are now continuing out of that story back into more commandments, more laws. But basically what we have seen and are continuing to see in Exodus is that God is something holy and something totally other than sinful people. And so now because of sin in the world, there's this huge gap that needs to be made up with constant sacrifices and just constant rituals needing to be done that kind of gets us into today where we see that things in this world aren't quite ideal, but yet God is going to work with this non-ideal state of humans and of his people and make ways for us to be with them. And today, we're going to be using words like clean and unclean. And what is cleanliness and uncleanliness? But yeah, that's it for the wrap
0: up. Dylan, you want to take us into the next section? Awesome. Thank you, Corey, for going through that. So today, like I said, we're going to be jumping into chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So if you want to pause and read through those, by all means... Now that you've done that, let's go ahead and jump into it. So starting out this section, uh, we're going to go through both 11 and 12 kind of as one big chunk. And so if you remember from last week, we talked a little bit about the structure of the book of Leviticus as a whole. And so Leviticus kind of has two halves to it with one section right in the middle that serves to be the main focus of the entire work. So if you look from chapter one through seven, you have a section on sacrifices, then chapters eight through 10, you have the ordination of the priests, then you have a section on ritual purity from 11 through 17. Then on the other side of the center divide, you have 18 through 20, where you have a section on moral purity that aligns with the section on ritual purity, then you have a section Between from 21 through 22 on qualifications that aligns with the ordination of the priests. And then finally, you have a section in 23 through 25 that deals with the feasts that aligns with the section on sacrifices at the other side of that. And right in the middle there, you have the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, which is really the main point of the book. So we're going to be getting into that today. But before we do, let's go ahead and jump into the section on ritual purity. So to start this section off, We have an entire section dedicated to talking about what is clean and unclean as far as food goes. And so, this is a topic that we've already touched on that is, eating and what should be eaten and what shouldn't be eaten. All the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we talked about what should be eaten and what shouldn't be eaten. And it's consistently an important idea that there are things that are good for food and there are things that are not. So carrying on with that idea now, we're talking about what is clean and what is unclean with regard to various types of animals. And so as we go through this list, we'll point out a few things that are a little bit more detailed so that you guys have a good idea of what the section's about. And then we'll kind of give an overview on it about why it is actually important and what the author is doing with it in the book as a whole. So Corey, go ahead and jump us into kind of what exactly is going on here.
1: I don't know if you guys are like me, who've always kind of wondered like, what's the deal with kosher foods, but never really got into studying it. This is where kosher food laws are, Leviticus chapter 11. And so not going to go super in depth, but let's get into what's the language like of Leviticus 11. And so it starts out with, these are the animals that you may eat. And it starts with the animals of the earth. And then it's going to move to the animals of the waters. And then it's going to move into the birds of the sky. And we've seen this uh, three-tier mentioning of animals, again, back in Genesis chapter one. And so everything goes back to the first three chapters of Genesis. Man, I think we warned you guys that in like the first or second episode of this podcast. And the more we get into it, the more it just proves to be true. But uh, we have in the first instance of what you can and cannot eat, Verse 3 of chapter 11 says, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, those are the animals you can eat. And it goes on to talk about you can have cows and oxen and sheep and goats because those animals have split hoofs and chew cud. And then it goes on to give examples of things that are not good for eating, like pigs and camels because they have split hoofs but don't chew cud. Or the hare and the rock badger because they chew cud, but without having cloven hooves. Okay, and for whatever reason, that is God's big general guidelines. And then for the next section, starting like verse 9 of chapter 11, the next three verses, it talks about everything in the water that has fins and scales you may eat. And that's really easy. If it has fins and scales, it's good. No exception. So obviously, it leaves out things like crustaceans, like lobsters, and crabs. It leaves out um, mussels. It leaves out stingrays and sharks and octopus. And then we get into the birds. And this is the only food law that doesn't give us general instructions, instead, it gives us a bunch of specifics. And so, it says, you know, don't eat the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, any raven, ostrich. And it goes on and on for like, I think it's like 21 animals. But basically, the general idea, although it's not given in the text, is something like don't eat vultures or birds of prey. And so, what you're left with is like chickens and pheasants or what we see in the Bible so far, we've seen God provide quail for his people. Within the sacrifices, we see that doves and pigeons are able to be eaten. So so we see these birds that aren't birds of prey and aren't vultures. They pretty much are limited to eating seed and things like that or fruit. And those things are good. Um, But then we have another section of insects. And so if you see a winged insect that goes on all four, that's detestable to you. Don't eat it. But if they have jointed legs above the feet, You know, those legs that have really high, what looks like knees and goes way above their feet. Those things you can eat. So things like locusts or crickets or grasshoppers. And it even adds in a bald locust as something different from other locusts. But okay, another general idea. And then from there, we get into this idea that you shouldn't even touch the unclean animals. Down in verse 24 of this chapter. And you definitely shouldn't touch their carcasses. And so sorry if you're a pet fan, like dogs and cats. It says animals with paws are no bueno. No moles, rats, mouses, and then no like lizards, geckos, those reptilian type of things. And you're not supposed to touch them besides just not eating them. And so if you are to come in contact with one of these things... There's special ways in which you have to wash yourself with water. And then if you come across a carcass, let's say if a clean animal dies, this is down in verses like 39 and 40, you can touch the carcass, but you'll be unclean till evening. And if you eat of it, you have to wash your clothes and you'll be unclean till evening. So, yeah, sure. If, you know, you like roadkill, you can go ahead and eat the deer you just ran over but just know that you cannot be entering God's presence. And that's kind of the big idea between clean and unclean. This we'll get into more. But a big idea from this section comes in verses 44 and 45. It's almost like a summary of chapter 11, and why God is giving all this. And so God says, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And so this is the big crux of the matter. I know we like to make it about like, oh, is it because pigs are dirty and like get things like the swine flu if you eat pigs or you don't want to eat bats because you'd get, you know, some sort of COVID related virus like Well, maybe God and his wisdom did that, but as far as what God says and what it comes down to is follow me because I am holy. And if you follow me in faith and obey these things, I will make you holy. Pretty cool. We see that the holy one gives guidelines for what is holy and not holy and what is clean and not clean. And he actually makes people holy. So he has that power to spread his holiness to others. And we see like he does it with those who obey by their faith.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's a little bit of detail about this section. Oftentimes, I know it is tempting to skip over Leviticus in your year-long Bible read uh, simply because of all of this law code. So hopefully that acquaints you a little bit more with exactly what's going on in the section. As far as the big picture, however, goes, Corey did point this out already a little bit. But this section that is 11 and 12 really serve to point back to Genesis 1. Corey did say that. And the way it does this is in Genesis 1, we see God creating animals. So he pulls the land from the sea. And then on the land, we have, uh, well, first off, we have fish in the sea, and then we have birds in the air, and then we have animals on the land. And then finally... We have God creating humans. And so here we see a very similar pattern that the author is dealing with, where there are animals of the air, animals of the sea, and animals of the land that are being dealt with and being declared clean or unclean. And then in chapter 12, we have an entire section dedicated to humans, particularly that which the human does that might render them unclean. So in chapter 12, we're talking about childbirth. If you remember all the way back to Genesis, you'll know that as soon as humans are created, God charges them and says, be fruitful and multiply. And we talked about that a little bit in our initial Genesis episodes. And we also pointed out the fact that humans are told to be fruitful. And we thought that that was interesting insofar as the only other thing that bears fruit. Are The trees that are created. And so there's this interesting connection between humans and trees at that point and human offspring thereafter are often referred to as fruit or seeds, etc. And here again, we see a very similar scenario. So in chapter 12, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, say to the people of Israel, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, etc. That word for conceives in Hebrew is the word for to bear a seed or to have a seed. And so it is an agricultural term. It doesn't strictly mean be pregnant. Like our English term, be pregnant, it's bear a seed. And so once again, we have a connection all the way back to Genesis with the Lord speaking to Moses and saying, if a woman bears a seed, a man child, she shall be unclean seven days, etc. And so this whole section is really serving to point back to Genesis in that regard. Also, if you remember from our Genesis conversation, particularly that of chapter three, you'll note that chapter three, verse 15 in Genesis is monumentally important. And we referred to that a whole bunch of times throughout the podcast. And it's important insofar as that is the time when God promises a Messiah for the first time. In Genesis 3.15, God says that the woman is going to bear a seed. And that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and that the serpent is going to bruise the seed's heel. From that point on, we're consistently looking for that seed and asking the question, is this the one who is going to return us back to the ideal state? And so humans are exiled after that from the ideal state and are constantly at a point where they are trying to get back to that ideal state. But it is only through this seed that that will transpire. And so as a result, the text up until this point has consistently dealt with that idea and that theme. Now, from Exodus and into Leviticus, we have a covenant being cut between Israel and God. And this covenant is a covenant that will allow Israel to have some semblance of access to God as a result of God's cutting of this covenant with them. And so the idea of God placing himself in a box, the tabernacle, which we've already dealt with, and coming and dwelling with his people is one step closer to that ideal that we're hoping to get back to. And now in this section, we're getting a glimpse of God kind of reinstituting that creation ideal between humans and himself and saying there are certain things that I declare good for you and certain things that I declare not good for you. And therefore, just as in the beginning where God says I declare certain things good and certain things bad, humans need to follow that which God declares as good or in a sense clean in order to come before him. Because, as the main conflict states, the primary reason that humans are even in this predicament is because they consistently want to choose their own wisdom over and against God's. Now, humans, in order to be made holy and brought before the presence of God, need to do one simple thing. They need to follow that which God has spoken. And in so doing, they can be made holy and can enter God's presence thus returning in some semblance to that ideal state of being able to access God. So that's really what we have going on in this section. And then throughout the rest of the book of Leviticus as well. It's really, as Corey said, the main crux of this is God is Yahweh. He is holy. So you people should be holy as God is holy. Leviticus eleven forty-four through 45. So let's go ahead and keep moving on. We're going to go ahead and run through 13 and 14 and maybe 15 fairly quickly now. And then we're going to be jumping in the Day of Atonement. So, Corey, go ahead and run us through 13, 14, 15.
1: Yeah, so as we get into 13 and 14 and 15, it's all about the human body. So as Dylan mentioned, from 11 and 12, we go from the animals to humans. And we start at their birth, and now we're going into more of the human condition and like Dylan was mentioning, we're going to have God dealing with the non-ideal state of his people. So here we have in chapter 13, laws about leprosy. That's what your translation might say, but there might be a little footnote in your Bible that says, ah, leprosy, this term, was this a term for several skin diseases? So it could be leprosy, it could be a number of other things. But the idea here is that if you have a skin disease... Here's how you have to deal with it. And it's mainly talking to the priests. And so the priest is given all these guidelines of how to judge people from harmful skin diseases to something that could just be really minor, right? From things like leprosy to even things like boils or some sort of burn of the skin. And then what will become of that burnt skin? Is it going to get infected? So what's going to happen in chapter 13 is that the priest is going to be given a huge responsibility to say that people are either clean from a serious skin disease, they just need to bandage it up for a certain amount of time and come back in seven days, then wash the bandage and his clothes and his body, and then he's good to go. Or the priest will say something like, no, um, you got a serious skin disease and you are out of the group of people of God's group of people, that is. So it's not like, oh, you just can't go into the tabernacle. You can't be an Israelite. You cannot be one of God's people. You're out of this community. So really, really heavy, what the priest is able to say, but it's not like it's just the priest's word against someone else's word. It's God's word and the priest is called to uphold it. But of course, God makes a way in chapter 14 For if someone is to come in and they have been healed, they can come back and present themselves to the priest. And we see Jesus following this protocol when he heals lepers in his day. After he heals someone with leprosy, he says, all right, go back to the priest and show yourself well. Going back to Leviticus 14, the priest has the call of what is clean or unclean. So we see that Jesus points back to Leviticus 14, showing us that the priest has final call for what is clean and unclean. And not just clean and unclean like how we saw before. Like once a woman gives birth, she has to wait eight days if it's a boy. Then she can take the boy to the temple to be circumcised. This uncleanness of skin disease, because it's so easily spread, this person needs to be totally separated from the rest of the congregation of the people. And so in the same way, you know, someone needs to be cleansed, so their house needs to be cleansed as well in these certain ways. And almost in all of these ways, besides just being cleansed with water, there has to be an animal that is going to be sacrificed as well to cleanse the house or to cleanse this person or group of people who had a skin disease disease. And so it is through this washing of water and through the blood of this animal that this person is let back into the community of God's people. And and there's, you know, so much in there to bring out. Go and read through these books and these chapters, seeing the details in light of the bigger picture, like we said, but we're going to have to keep moving on. And then we get into chapter 15, which is a pretty awkward chapter. It's laws about bodily discharges. So like men who have discharges of semen in the night, it's like, well, you're unclean for a time. Or a woman who's going through menstrual impurity, like, well, you're unclean for this amount of time because of your blood. And so a really dumb and nerdy thing we used to do in Bible college, it's like, you don't really know what to do with Leviticus. But Leviticus 15 is pretty fun to read in different accents. We'd all try and fake an accent and read a passage and try not to laugh. And what I'm coming to realize is Leviticus 15 is so much more than poking fun of strange laws that don't make sense to us. Um, What we see is God making distinctions between what is holy and what is not holy and what is clean and what is not clean. And we see this distinction of something holy from common back in Genesis chapter 1 to 2. And in the beginning of chapter 2, those first three verses of chapter 2 in Genesis say that God made the seventh day holy and thus separated from the other days. Not that the other days were bad, but holiness has to do with separation. And so we have Leviticus coming along and adding to our definition of holy. Leviticus is one of the best Bible definers of holiness and what it means to be holy. And so what we're seeing here in these chapters, a big shared truth that comes out of all these monotonous details that in this covenant, they had to obey very strictly. The big shared truth is God separates what is holy from what is not holy from what is clean and what is not clean. And God has the final say on what is holy and those with faith will believe in God and do as he says. And so for us, we still have to believe and obey God to say what is holy and not holy. But thank God we're not banned from his presence if we're like a woman in our menstrual cycle or give birth. But we see that God is, like Dylan said, dealing with the unideal state of humanity. Just like how Eve was cursed. God said to Eve, you're going to have great pain in childbearing. And now there's even going to be this separation from God after the birth of the child. Which the birth of the child is still such a good thing and such a blessing. But yet there comes about separation. And even once a baby is born... They can't go into God's presence until the eighth day if they're a boy. And so looking into the life of Jesus, when he was born for seven days, he could not step into the presence of God. And then on the eighth day, he was brought in and he was circumcised. And that's when the prophet Simeon, the prophetess Anna, speak over Jesus' life. When I bring this up to say that we're used to talking about Jesus being separated from God on the cross, But his separation from God started once he was born and for those first seven days being ritually unclean. Not that he was ever sinful, but he couldn't step into God's presence. And like Dylan said, it is not sinful to be unclean, but it is sinful to step in God's presence unclean because then his holiness will consume you.
0: Dylan, anything else on these I would only like to reemphasize the idea regarding uncleanliness that you just pointed out, and that is that uncleanliness is not a state of sin. It's not sinful to be unclean. As a matter of fact, if you read through these rules and regulations, you will come to find that it's nearly impossible not to be unclean at some point in your life. But unclean is simply not holy. And if you are in a state of uncleanliness and not holy... You must be cleansed or consecrated, just as we've been seeing this idea of consecration consistently crop up before one meets with God. You must be consecrated and made clean prior to meeting with God because you are naturally not holy and God is. And so you must be holy to meet with God. So I would like to once again reemphasize that as that is a major idea behind this section and it will be continue to be a major ideal behind the rest of Leviticus and even into other parts of the Torah as well. And so, with that, we'll go ahead and jump into chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen, like I said initially, is the center point of the book. This is kind of the linchpin or hinging point of the book. Everything else in the book seems to center around this main chapter, and the idea of this chapter being. The day of atonement. And now, if you're unaware, atonement is a means by which God is, I'll use a theological term, propitiated. That is, he is satisfied such that the one being atoned for. Does not incur is wrath that they rightly deserve. And so this will be a consistent theme throughout the Hebrew Bible. And then jumping into the New Testament, we are going to consistently refer to the idea of atonement. But here we have a bunch of sinful people. Remember, this is post-fall, post-Eden. And God is once again allowing for people to come to Himself. But people cannot come to God without consequences. The consequences being that they need a blood sacrifice. Either it's going to be them or it's going to be one made on their behalf in order to be atoned for before God so that they can come before him. So that is what this chapter is going to be dealing with. Corey's going to go ahead and jump into it in a little bit more detail. So let's go ahead and get into it. Corey.
1: Yeah, the Day of Atonement is such a rich Chapter. If you're going to read any chapter of Leviticus, chapter 16 is the one. And of course, I don't recommend just reading one chapter out of any book. Read through the whole thing. But chapter 16 deserves a lot of attention and focus. And if you guys are like me and you enjoy the Bible Project and scholars like Tim Mackey, Tim Mackey really highlights the importance of the Day of Atonement. And he's convinced that a lot of the events in the Gospels are kind of structured around to be like the Day of Atonement. And so, not only is it really important to the book of Leviticus, that is, it's the center of the big chiasm that is Leviticus. Chiasm is a word for like structure, usually in poetry, but like there's mirror images on each side of a middle point, and the middle point of the chiasm is really important. And so, not only is chapter 16 the middle of the great chiasm of the book of Leviticus, and it's also going to have huge implications into Jesus on the cross and the trial before his death. And so, uh, I'll kind of come back around to that briefly, but Moses has to tell Aaron and his sons This is the first bit of narrative literature since chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, which the last bit of narrative in the book of Leviticus was chapter 10, where Aaron's two sons had passed away. So now we're like picking up where the story last left off. What's going to happen on this day of atonement is that Aaron needs to come inside the holy place inside of the veil. That is the most holy place. So usually the priests are just dealing with the outer court of the tabernacle and just within the first part of the tabernacle. The day of atonement is when the high priest gets to go inside of the most holy place. And again, pretty interesting. We see holiness having hot spots. And so the hot spot of God's presence and holiness is before the mercy seat that is on the Ark of the Covenant where God's spirit rests as a cloud by day or fire by night. And so Aaron is to come to bring a bull from the herd as a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then he will put on the right amount of clothes and he's going to bathe his body in water and put on the garments. And then he's going to take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. And then the ram... Again, it's going to be for a burnt offering. So Aaron's going to come in. He's going to sacrifice the bull to make atonement for himself and his house, just as the priests are called to do with a sin offering. They have to make an offering of the bull for themselves, and then they go on to make offerings for the other people. But then he's going to take two goats, and he's going to cast lots over the goats, which is like rolling a die or like breaking a stick in half, and like, pick for the longer stick. Hopefully you don't get the short end of the stick. And so they're going to cast lots of the goat, and the goat that gets the short end of the stick will be killed as a normal sin offering. The other goat shall be kept alive. And it says, if your translation is like mine, it says the lot of the alive goat will be for Azazel, which is really weird. It's just an untranslated Hebrew word. Um, Literally, it means an entire removal. So, this goat is going to be entirely removed from the camp of the Israelites. Some people think that, oh, maybe it's some desert demon. Uh, I'm not kidding as what even some really smart guys will say about this. A lot of translations will have scapegoat. And I think the scapegoat is a really good idea of what's going on here. Once Aaron makes those other sacrifices, he's going to put his hands on the scapegoat. He's going to essentially cast the sins of the people on this goat and then have someone who has been made ready in verses 21 through 22. It literally says, Aaron will put them on the head of the goat, that is the transgressions of the people, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So someone who's prepared and ready to take on this task for God. And verse 22 goes on to say, "...the goat shall bear all their iniquities to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Very symbolic here. This goat is carrying the sins of the people out into the wilderness, taking them out of the camp. So all of a sudden, we're given this idea that not only is sin atoned for by the sacrifice, but it's also being cast on a goat and being sent away Tim Mackey will see this and say well when you have gospel accounts that look at Jesus on trial with Barabbas this really sinful man who basically stands for all of the sins of humanity and he is let go but then Jesus the innocent one gets killed and so we see Barabbas walking away in joy and singing taking the sins of the people not necessarily away but the case that Tim Mackey makes for this gospel account is that the sins are walking away. in this man who is not by no means atoning for sins, but you see all of these sins of murder and greed being walked away by Barabbas, kind of like this representative. So anyways, it's a pretty cool connection. And it's not like one for one connections, but needless to say, the Day of Atonement teaches us a lot about atonement. And Leviticus itself, like we talked about last week, especially with the sacrifices, is just setting the stage of how one is to be made clean to go into God's sight. What these sacrifices are doing is setting the stage for the ultimate covenant, the ultimate sacrifice that will work for good. That's kind of the big idea for the Day of Atonement. So we're just going to move on to chapter 17 as the last idea of the day. And this is getting into the place of sacrifice. So we've been dwelling a lot about being clean or unclean to go into God's presence. And the Day of Atonement has to do with going into the holy place of the tabernacle. And now we're still dealing with the idea of the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice Obviously, God says it's only to be done in front of the tabernacle. If you're going to try and kill an ox or a lamb and kill it outside the camp and you're not going to bring it to God, that person is going to be cut off from his people. And so if you're going to try and make a sacrifice to God, let's say you want to go up to a high place like on some mountain or hill because it feels really spiritual and you feel close to the heavens. Resist that urge. Resist that urge to do what's good in your own eyes, but do it God's way. Go to his tent to meet him there. That is the place where God meets with man, not another place. And you know, thank God it's different for our our day, but we're going to see so many stories revolve around this exact problem. Just go to God's place and go to the priests. That's what they're there for. But if you're going to go outside of my means of being made right with God, don't expect to be made right with God on your own terms. And then we have a recapitulation of something that God has said before, at the second half of chapter 17, and that's against the eating of blood. Yes, I said eating of blood because that's what the text says. I know I technically you drink blood, I guess, uh, but we're sticking with the text. And so back in Leviticus chapter 3, God said, In your offerings, do not drink the blood. For in verse 14 of chapter 17, God says that its blood is its life. So therefore, don't drink the blood. That came up in Leviticus chapter 3. That also came up in the story of Noah, where God finally gave the people allowance to eat animals. Before that, God had said, only eat of plants and the trees and their fruit. And so now, once people were allowed to eat of animals, there was one thing that God said do not do. It says don't eat of the animal's blood because in its blood is its life. So although God has allowed you to take away its life, not in that sense of its blood, we're going to see blood have huge implications. We've already seen it every single one of these sacrifices that, you know, the priest takes the blood, sprinkles it on the horns of the altar, sprinkles it against the veil of the holy place. So blood is really important to God. And of course, it's going to be really important in the time of Jesus as well. I'm sure we're very familiar with the blood of Jesus and why we sing so much about his blood. And that big emphasis on the blood comes from the Torah. So if we're not familiar with how God views blood and life in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and books after that, but especially As it's just starting out in these beginning books, we're not going to totally understand the big picture that God's trying to get in our mind about the blood that is the lifeblood of the animal and how blood atones for sins and why it is so terrible to drink of blood. And that's something that's even brought up in the book of Acts chapter 15 says, yeah, you can eat anything now, but still do not drink the blood because in its blood is its life. So it's not just like a Old Testament, Old Covenant thing. It's, this is really important for God and life. Much bigger theological implications that happen with
0: blood. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Corey, for taking us through all of that huge, big section. So ending chapter 17 then wraps up that section from 11 through 17 on ritual purity. So that then concludes the last of the first three sections. Next week, then we're going to start on the second list of three sections that kind of complete that inclusio that Corey was talking about. So this week, ultimately, main takeaway would be, don't do that, which God has declared unclean. Do that, which God has declared will make you clean or keep you clean. Because in being clean, you are consecrated, you are holy, and you are able to come before God. Ultimately, as well, big picture from today is the Day of Atonement. So, ultimately, atonement, as I've already said, is going to be a major theme throughout the rest of the Bible. Atonement is something that is necessary for people to be brought before God. There does need to be that shedding of blood on behalf of sin and the removal of sin before one is able to come before God. So big takeaways, be holy as God is holy, just as it says in Leviticus 11, 44 through 45. That is really the main crux of the issue that is being addressed here. And so we see that God is dealing with with sinful humans, humans that have fallen as a result of their decision to choose their own wisdom over and against godly wisdom, and in making this covenant with them and bringing them once again near to him, we see that he is working with humans, that is, he is not making a black and white distinction Per se, but instead is recognizing the sinfulness of humans and making a way that they can actually come before him in spite of their sinfulness. And so ultimately, the goal is to be clean so that one can come before God. If one becomes unclean and is therefore unholy, do not come before God, but make every effort to be clean and come before God. So that's really the main points, main takeaways, as we went through 11 through 17. We'll go ahead and wrap up there. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into the show today. If you guys do enjoy the show, please do leave a review wherever you listen that helps out the show's visibility. Also, if you would like to engage further with some of our resources, those can all be found at our website, www. The Bible is a story.com there you'll find access to the blog, the podcast, the YouTube channel and everything else that we have to offer. So do check that out. If you would like to ask us any questions, feel free to email us at scripture at gmail.com. And then also go ahead and like us on Facebook if you'd like to stay up to date with the most real time information. Finally, if you guys would like to support the show financially, this show is paid for completely out of pocket. You can do that at our website by clicking on the donate tab. And you can do that through PayPal or through the Patreon page, a platform that is meant to take donations for episodic content such as this. Guys, thank you again for tuning in and shalom adios. Shalom adios.